Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. So, Chris, August already, and um, National Allotments Week in second week in August, isn't it? It is, Peter, yes. And um, this year's theme uh, is plotting for the future. Okay. Um, the, the idea behind that uh, theme is to basically look how allotments have are trying to be more sustainable um, and of course sustainability is so important in gardening these days from the compost we use to the pots we we use in our uh, propagation units to um, how we source our plants and and seeds and also the water isn't it because i know on my allotment a lot of the um, greenhouses and sheds have got water bo- uh, butts and mm-hmm. um, uh, guttering to catch all the water and it's so much easier <laughs> from a laziness point of view if you've got a water <laughs> butt on your allotment rather than have to trudge off up the lane to get your watering cans filled up I know. I'm certainly jealous of those who've got the masses of masses of water butts. <laughs> Indeed, and of course, in view of the you know the summer we've had, it's been very variable in the amount of rain we've had. But of course, with vegetable crops and a lot of your fruit crops, the the, the the demand for moisture at certain times is 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 high. Hence, the sustainability will also look at using obviously mulches on the on the plots too. So it's the whole area, which I think you know we perhaps we can learn as, as gardeners that the allotment is do so many things so well. Um, uh, and they obviously lead by example. Don't they just? So something I'd never heard of before is National Plum Day. Now, that's another event that happens in August, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's quite specific to Perthshire. It's their Plum Festival, and uh, it, it happens you know, throughout uh, August. And, of course, Perthshire is well known for its uh, soft fruit and top fruit growing. Um, if you ever go down that part of the world, you know, um, plums and cherries seem to take centre stage, as well as uh, I think some of the the uh, the, the uh, parmain ap- uh, pears too. They're quite well known for their, uh, their 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 wonderful orchards in that part of the world too. Yeah, because the Vale of Evesham is mm. a very nice area, and mm. I remember having gone to Pershaw College. You got sort of Breeden Hill just behind the college, and it was a real sort of good old valley and river running down the middle. And yeah, like you say, lots of fruit being grown down in that area, and and of course a lot of uh, you know market gardens. I mean, some of the probably the best market gardens in the in the country can be found in that area. But I think the whole idea of the the National Plum Day is just to bring awareness to to this wonderful fruit, which of course has many guises. Although we sell. At the garden centre plums, we also sell gauges and we sell damsons, which are basically different sized plums. Plums, yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Yeah, I remember as a child, I think my, my elder brother tried feeding me some damsons once upon a time. Okay. <laughs> told me they were lovely, juicy, ripe, <laughs> fresh plums. And would I like one? And they were so sour. Yeah, I would say that um, probably didn't end well, Peter. <laughs> no, but I think my parents enjoyed making wine out of them. Of course. They're definitely a good good fruit wines yeah. crop from aren't they and certainly uh, i mean plum victoria i mean it's synonymous for for gardeners for being so reliable and easy and it's one of the few fruit uh, trees which you can fan train against a, a north facing wall which for a lot of people you know if they've got a predicament what can i grow on a, a very shady wall well pear trees might survive but certainly uh, victoria plum tend to do really well so oh, i which, never knew that and do they crop well on a north re- yeah wall? reasonably well obviously the more sun they get they will they will better. do better but yeah, for the ripening of wood, but they will tolerate those sort of conditions. So it just shows you how a, a stall-hardy variety it is. And, of course, it's self-fertile, so you don't have to worry about pollinators. So if you've only got space for one 
Plumtree, yeah, make it a Victoria. Excellent. Good good suggestion there, Chris. Thank you. And I suppose the other thing with plums is it tends to be when they're out that time of year, there's also a lot of wasps out. Oh, Lord. They're always flying around buzzing and eating the fruit, aren't they? They are indeed. And indeed, I think your message, I think a podcast ago, Peter, about not flapping your hands around bees. Well, I'm afraid when it comes to wasps, I think that advice goes straight out of the window because uh, wasps and me tend not to go well together. Yeah, they are in pain, aren't they? they always, so when you're outside having a, a cup of tea and a bit of cake, straight to the cake they go. Indeed. They've got a good sense of smell. and But something that we've been selling here for a few years now at the garden centre is a waspinator, mm. which I when I first saw, saw it, a load of rubbish. Um, <laughs> but actually, they do work. They're, yes. no, they're quite good. They're just a sort of a fake nest, aren't they? Or a, a model nest. I don't know what you call them. You yes. Um, quite fun. You stick one of those underneath your parasol. Yeah. And they do They do seem to keep the, the wasps away. But Yeah, when I saw it, uh, Peter, I thought it was something from uh, one of the uh, the props from a sci-fi mu- uh, movie, to be honest with you, because it is so surreal to look at. However, I p- personally prefer the... Uh, Obviously, the sort of the glass jars, which you obviously top up with some nice sugary substances to attract yes. wasps that way. They look a little bit more decorative. And uh, certainly, I mean, I think over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years we've been selling at the garden centre here, they continue to be popular. So They sell very well and they work very well, like mm. you say. Mm. Sort of put one of those on your table and um, it's instead of the wasps going to your cake yep. hopefully they go to the wasp trap and yeah get, uh, get rid of them that way a very attractive decoy i would say definitely so talking about tea and cake chris something uh, we learned re- recently here was the difference between high tea and afternoon tea mm. can you tell us what the difference is yeah well it's going back a little bit in time actually going to the 1840s when basically the the gap between uh, obviously uh, breakfast lunch and then uh, supper provided a, an opportunity to create a, a meal and that meal became effectively high tea or afternoon tea the high tea gets its influence from the fact that uh, you would if you're having high tea and you're in well-to-do circles you would be on proper chairs and tables so you'd be elevated ah so the uh, the afternoon uh, tea is for the lazy ones like me who like slouching around on the sofa. I think most of us like to do that, <laughs> yes. But if you're feeling a bit refined, so if you're going out, you know, if you go to a National Trust property or to your garden centre who do afternoon teas, yeah, yeah, you're definitely having high tea, high on, tea at the table, indeed. Excellent, that's brilliant. And it's afternoon tea week, isn't it? Soon it is. Yeah, between um, yeah August the tenth and August the fifteenth, and it's a UK. Uh, event to promote if we need to promote such a wonderful uh, exuberance during the during the summer and to bring you know the idea, whole idea of actually enjoying time around the table at that time of the day um, and of course high, well high teas afternoon teas are very celebrationary now certainly at the garden center here we, we tend to have people coming in to use them as a real great opportunity to, to celebrate birthdays and anniversaries well, it's uh, a lovely treat isn't it mm, i mean isn't it? yeah I, see we make our own scones here and I, I can think of nothing better than a nice homemade scone and some cream and some strawberry jam and a nice pot of strong tea that, that, that's my idea of heaven 
Indeed, and that was those quintessential little English sandwiches which uh, which we put together, which is, of course is all part of the, the process. But uh, it's interesting, I mean, I think the popularity and the fact that uh, these days it is being offered now in, in such a, uh, so many different formats, isn't it? I think you can even get takeaway uh, afternoon teas as well. Yes, which and is, afternoon mm-hmm. teas with Prosecco, of course. That, uh, <laughs> of course, the, yes. The, the very rich amongst this. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I mean, there's... Uh, the, there's also the other argument about which way to put your cream and um, jam, isn't there? And isn't it the, the Cornish and the yes. So, so which way do do you take your afternoon tea? Honestly, I put the jam on first and then the cream, um, mm-hmm. just because I find it easier to spread it that way. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yes. I don't know if that's the correct <laughs> yeah. way or whether the because the Cornish like to. Split theirs in half and then put the jam on and then then the cream. So that's following your. your I'm I'm following the Cornish tradition. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So and if yeah, if you want to be uh, the opposite, then obviously you would uh, put the cream on first. Which I suppose depends on the consistency of the cream, but certainly getting the jam on there to stay on, especially if you've got those pesky wasps around you. might be a bit more of a problem but uh, well maybe they're more cultured in devon and they can uh, do do things more in a more refined way i'm sure they are yes excellent so with the cold spring this year and everything being so late chris obviously harvesting normally around this time of year are things like the sweet corns that i planted so late really going to be worth harvesting or well, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would wonder that obviously we're into some better spell of weather now. We're into August, so that should help them. Remember, things like sweet corn tend to produce the amount of growth quite quickly. And the whole plant's geared up to produce a crop within usually eight to 12 weeks of planting. Yep. Um, I noticed, um, you know, recently on some of the TV programmes, a lot of the, the crops are going in, you know, somewhat later than normal. So I think we have to be diligent as gardeners to watch the weather and work with the weather so perhaps this is a perfect example a year really where we've had to sort of do that quite uh, noticeably shift, yeah, shift yeah and shift along. things around a bit yeah because yeah, uh, yeah. potatoes are obviously in flower my mm. desire um looking okay they're not massive this year but mm-hmm. we're we'll, uh, looking forward to digging them up mm-hmm. And um, what other you know, sort of crops should we th- should we be thinking about at the moment? Yeah, so certainly when it comes to um, yeah potatoes, yes, usually you wait until you're you're well into flower, and or when the plants leaves start to go a bit yellow, that's usually an indication. Uh, I have to say we've had a few reports around the area where uh, obviously the garden is in Buckingham with a little bit of blight. Yep. So be wary of that. So if you get any blight on your potatoes, if you start to see sort of spotting on your leaves, and yellowing of leaves and the leaves sort of becoming very withered, then get those potatoes lifted as soon as you can to try and salvage the tubers before they get infected by the by the fungal disease that's quite important um, yeah because i can remember listening to our potato experts mm-hmm. in the podcast you know, one of the first ones we did it was all about that and the fact that the blight runs down in yeah. the stems of the potatoes and then infects the crop below so yeah mm-hmm. like you say sort of if you do see any blight whip it off and um, dig yes. up your potatoes if you can yeah and most definitely make a note of, of that and and certainly when you you're sourcing your sea potatoes come next uh, you know january february yeah go for the blight resistant varieties which there are plenty out there and you just need to searching out to to get yourself into that uh, hopefully that resistant mode and of course we haven't got any fungicides on the market now to protect from blight which is yep. such a shame which we could do 
uh, sort of previously. Um, the other thing, obviously, you might want to start thinking about, of course, is your onions, your garlic, and your your shallots. Uh, okay. If you like growing those, um, I used to when I used to grow onions on my plot. Once we got into the latter end of July, early August, when the the plants started to show some signs of stress and the the bulbs were forming quite nicely, I would normally go along with a fork and just carefully lift the the bulbs just lift them enough to separate them from the roots and then flop the um, tops of the plants over to to the left or right keeping them nice and um, tidy on the plot right. and that would then start to encourage the the, the the bulbs to ripen so you're removing the moisture content of well the moisture potential by the, yeah. the roots being snapped effectively and then the plant the root the the air can then get round the uh, the bulb and that can slowly but surely ripen the the bulb before uh, before being fully lifted and harvested. Okay. So, Chris, I bought a new toy a few years ago, um, the Hose Lock Grow Bag Waterer. Mm-hmm. And I've actually had some success uh, finally at growing my tomatoes because historically I think they used to dry out and uh, I grow them on the sort of patio and it's a lovely sun trap south facing mm-hmm. and um, I think they used to... The first time I did it, they all dried out and it didn't do very well. Whereas with this gadget or trough, I don't know what you call it, grow bag waterer, um, <laughs> it's a really good little invention, isn't it? It has, and it's got quite a reserve of moisture in it as well. It's got, it's got quite a tank, isn't it? So yeah, yeah. Uh, you sort of fill it up with water every couple of days, and mm-hmm. um, I generally put a bit of tomorite in there as well. Perfect. And um, it seems the, you know, the tomatoes are just... Yeah. drink so much don't they it's incredible you, you think well there must be a good i say five gallons possibly in yeah, the bottom of one cer- of those and certainly it holds a lot and with those wicks obviously it hacks through the capillarity into your, your cropping bag your grow bag as well which is really good piece because obviously the biggest problem a lot of people have at this time of year is their fruits sort of splitting or becoming uh, affected by a, th- a phenomenon called blossom end rot so yep. um it's interesting because when I was at college, we were always taught, like you are at college, that when your fruits of your tomatoes become, you get these sort of black sunken um, areas, and obviously as the, the 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 ripening fruit is developing, those black sunken areas look quite <laughs> disgusting. Yeah, they don't look good. Do they, they don't. No, um, that it was all to do with the uh, with the watering. That it, it was part and parcel of it. But uh, the, the the idea is, if your plant is dry, if you've come back from the holiday, you know, a week away, and you, you you've had somebody looking after your tomatoes faithfully, watering them, but unfortunately they've missed a water and the plants have, have uh, dried out. What normally happens is, technically, the plant will take moisture from the tips of the plant to support the plant well in fact it, it works in the reverse the moisture is taken from the fruits and the fruits then support the growing tips so the plant can continue to grow okay well that's what i was i was that's what i was that was the folklore surrounding it yeah and that's now not to be true because that in itself will not cause the blossom end rot what causes a blossom end rot in most tomatoes is a lack of calcium Okay, so we're not looking likely to suffer it around here if we use our finest tap water, are we? I was going to say. <laughs> so, I guess if you're using rainwater from the water butt, yeah, it's probably worth thinking about. I mean, mm-hmm. is it something that we need to think about if we're using a tomato fertiliser or is that... Are the decent ones already got all the minerals as well as the fertilisers in them? Yeah, I think if you stick to your, you know, your tried and tested tomorite or your doff tomato feed, or if you use, you know, if you converted to using sort of phosphogen on a lot of your crops, then it's got plenty of potassium in there and a lot of calcium. 
excellent in, in sufficient quantities but it's interesting you, you know the plants grow at such a, a pace um or maybe not as much this year because of the the weather conditions we've experienced but they, they are putting on lots of growth everywhere and i mean obviously de-side shooting taking those side shoots out of your plants is obviously a priority if you're growing them on as a cordon so if you're growing them up a single stem Yep, and you're encouraging those trusses to develop. It is important you you take those trusses out. And the other thing, is, of course, is the, the big dilemma: when, when do you take the growing tip out? When do you have this leap of faith that the trusses you've got so far are going to be sufficient to carry the fruits you're producing? So uh, generally, I always say, yeah, get that, let them get to five flowers of. Uh, you know nice trusses of a flower of, of developing flower, and fingers crossed we get a decent autumn, and those then will develop into into fruits. Excellent. Okay, thanks for that, Chris. So thinking about sitting out in the garden a bit more and eating your crops, and mm. one of the things that I mentioned a while ago was the broad bean dip that I love making. So such a simple recipe, isn't it, Chris? Um, I think you got to try some earlier. I did, and very nice it was too. I uh, have to say I, I like my hummus, and I like anything sort of uh, dippy, which, which is not too spicy. This sits very comfortably on my palate. So yeah, it's such up. an easy one to make as well. I mean, it's mm-hmm. literally, you know, I think, 250, 300 grams of broad beans, boil them up, and then just leave a tiny bit of water in the bottom of the pan, mm-hmm. maybe even sort of, two, three millimetres, depends on how much, how big your pan is, I suppose, but a, a little bit of water and then chuck in some olive oil, so you know, a couple of spoonfuls of olive oil and um, some nice rosemary from the garden mm-hmm. and then you know, sort of three or four cloves of garlic depends obviously how big the garlic is and so all things that we can really easily grow in this country and then once you've uh, put all the ingredients in the saucepan blend them up with the i don't know what the technical term is blender zhuzhia, <laughs> and, 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 and until it goes into a nice sort of you don't want it too too smooth, no. but it's it sort of like hummus consistency or a, it's a, a, a nice dipping consistency. And then, um, yeah, off you go. Stick it on some toast or pita bread and, or, or just use breadsticks and dip away. Yeah. Great, great. I would say a great accompaniment to your barbecue or your uh, yeah your summer salads uh, and a healthy dip as well. That's yes, what I like yes. about it. Yeah, that's a nice one, Peter. And I think uh, yeah, more you know more um, recipes we can glean from our garden and you know by necessity have a look at the ingredients you've, you're growing and then work backwards because obviously a lot of these uh, things can be created quite easily and uh, they can just add to the the whole. Uh, experience of enjoying our gardens to the full through the months of, uh, of summer and especially this month definitely so with it now being august you know, chris have we still got time to put some more lettuce in do you think most definitely yes i, I mean i've been um, pulling lettuce quite regularly actually and it's interesting with with lettuce you, you only need a small amount of seedlings coming along on, in your greenhouse or on your windowsill to fill those gaps and Certainly, um, I tend to go for Lilo Rosso. Okay, uh, I use it a lot in my sandwiches and things. I think it's just a, such an easy, it's a very open-leafed uh, variety. And of course, you get it in nice bright bronze and green colours, so it looks quite attractive. In fact, I've seen some lovely Lilo Rosso growing in people's gardens in mixed borders, which is often you have to do a double take. But why not grow your, your salads amongst your, your perennials uh, on your bedding plants? 
Well, we certainly do with the cabbages as well, don't we? And, we do. Um, you so often see those embedding displays. <laughs> That's right. So, um, yeah, as far as uh, seed sowing now, yeah, um, as I say, we, we're talking about lettuce, but certainly radish. You can certainly get another two or three sowings of those in over the next uh, two to three weeks. Okay. Um, the variety, um, obviously, French breakfast, uh, or in this case, I've got a, a nice packet of Sparkler 3, which I'm not familiar with, but it's a very nice round uh, quite a, a mild, crisp uh, variety. So that'll take us well into October for harvesting. So it'll give you a nice sort of stretch of three three months or so yep. of, of harvest time. To follow that for your salads, then obviously some more um, uh, spring onions. But this is the winter Lisbon hardy spring onion, effectively. Okay. So this will sit over the winter months, and you'll be harvesting, harvesting this much earlier than your traditional spring onions you sow in, in March under cloches. Right. So you're going to get a head start on your plot as well. So if you've got raised beds, if you've got large pots, um, if you're growing some things on the patio, then a few um, white Lisbon will do the trick uh, for those. And then if you're wanting some brassicas, um, well, mainly cabbage, then obviously a spring cabbage. Yep. Lots of those on the market. Uh, obviously Durham's early. Uh, the one I picked up from Johnson Seeds is Offenham uh, 2, which in brackets is Flower of Spring, which I think is a great name for a vegetable, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. For nice. a variety. And it's your typical sort of pointed uh, cabbage. So you could grow it as a, a proper cabbage or as, as spring greens, as a lot of us like to, to enjoy our uh, cabbages that way. And last but not least, and I think it's a variety you've mentioned, uh, Peter, is chard. Um, mm. Chard bright lights. Which, again, if you've got limited space for growing veg and you want to introduce it into your garden, this would look very nice in, a, in ornamental beds as well. With their it is so colourful, isn't it? Mm. I, I think it's growing wild on my allotment um, oh, because it seems to be sprouting up <laughs> everywhere. And uh, the, Great. We, we've also got some wild parsnips that okay. um, my, my mother had to identify for me. <laughs> I, but they've got lovely yellow flowers, the parsnips. Yeah, oh, the whole carrot family have wonderful, wonderful flowers, don't they? Cute yeah. as yes. But, Excellent. So, uh, and and pak choy, that's the other one you can part, uh, plant this time of year. You can, yeah. You, you've got a, a good few weeks of that. Again, make sure you're going into well improved soil. Make sure there's no you know weed growth around when you, you're sowing. And uh, yeah, obviously give the, the the soil a bit of a drink uh, as we'll be into some dry weather now, yep. just to get the germination through. And be patient. If you if you are sowing varieties which are quite slow. You know, historically on your plot, then a good little tip, I always get a little bit of mustard or cress seed and mix that in with the seed I'm sowing to define where I'm sowing it. That'll, okay. So that'll come up really quickly. Um, it'll obviously come to nothing, but at least it'll identify where you've sown. You can your, see where your rows of seeds yeah, are. Yeah. That's a really good tip. Though. Yeah, I, I use that for my parsnip when I used to grow parsnips because, of course, they're notoriously slow, as is parsley. So if you're growing anything which is really tricky, yeah, mustard or cress. And then you don't weed it out. <laughs> exactly. So I think probably my favourite fruit that we can grow fairly easily in this country is strawberry. Oh, yes. And you know, the, the, cro- uh, the season's over now for the cropping of them, isn't it? But yeah. we, you know, we now need to start thinking about propagation, don't we? Yes, because straight after your, uh, your crop of strawberries, you usually find the plant is very obliging and sends out lots of um, shoots, uh, which we affectionately call runners. Yep. And then these runners basically will become um, new plants. They will produce a long shoot, and at the end you'll have a little embryonic strawberry plant, genetically identical to the variety it's obviously come from. Yep. And you can either, well, 
traditionally you would get some nice uh, little pots, some nine centimetre, three and a half inch pots, nice gritty compost or a nice peat-free compost, and you'd peg down these little young plants into the uh, the compost and often you'd sort of plunge those if you've got your, your strawberries in a bed you'd just sort of plunge those into the soil so they're at the same sort of level you do need to keep that compost in those pots nice and moist which can be tricky when you've plunged it into the soil so do okay. sort of bear that in mind what i tend to do i'm a bit of a cheat here i'll actually let my plants uh, naturally root into the soil around yep and then usually yeah and that's it in october <laughs> i'll go along uh get a get a pair of um, secateurs and snip because the plant will still be attached to the mother plant yeah go along snip off those pot them up and then over winter and then i'll have perfectly good one-year-old plants which i will probably get a small crop from in the in the following spring following sort of uh, may june time from from planting Okay, because what's the lifespan of your standard strawberry plants if you just without taking the runners off it? Yeah, I think it's around about five, four to five years. They start to run out of steam quite quickly because obviously they're growing in the same area. Yep. And that's the thing with strawberries, you do need to almost rotate them round your plot. So okay. if you've got the space or you're growing them in sort of raised beds, I've got two raised beds of strawberries and I'll, I think probably next year one of them will be coming to an end. I'll need to basically give it a year's rest, the soil. Oil, maybe grow some maybe uh, maybe my tomato plants will go in there where i can improve the soil and then the following year the runners i've produced from my other bed can go into there to keep the continuity going i think Thanks. it's quite important but yeah when you buy your strawberries um i mean we do uh, root wrap strawberries and we do potted strawberries they're always from a certified source so always make sure you get them from a, a good ministry uh, source so they're clean of virus um, most strawberries actually a bit like the potatoes are grown uh, up up north up, up in up in Scotland. Okay, uh, there isn't the green fly. Of course, green fly is the vector of a lot of um, virus diseases. So always make sure when you, you you're buying your strawberries that they are certified stock. It's quite important, and that means you'll have you'll be starting off with the best plants to to give you that four or five years of of good cropping. And like you say, so if you can take the runners off, you can keep them going sort of mm. ad infinitum. Yeah. And the other thing, Peter, that is something I've, I've been playing around with this year is growing alpine strawberries. Okay, yeah. Um, because you grow those from seed, yep. so they're good. Um, and they're, they're so easy to grow. Um, I've planted four or five dotted around the garden, and they, they've cropped, and they, they've continued to crop uh, well into July. Um, so you can actually obviously enjoy those fruits. You're not going to get punnets of, of fruit, but you get... because yeah, the, the fruit's very small, isn't it? It's a sort of large garden pea. It is. Um, broad bean sort of size. and uh, But very some of them were really nice. I can remember as a child, sort of, they were scattered around the garden and you used to go and hunt the strawberry planet and yeah, yeah the, the little alpine strawberries are a lovely little but, treat but the flavor uh, as they say is to savor because it's really sweet very and it's got a i don't know it's just a it's obviously the origins of the strawberries we grow now commercially so it's got a lot of dege- the genetics of those but i just find it such an intense flavor mm, very good thank you so in our last show, Chris, we talked about uh, uh, roses, and mm-hmm. uh, I learnt a new term, which is budding. Mm. Um, obviously, that's part of propagation. But uh, have you managed to watch the video on both? Most definitely, yes. Uh, fascinating and, I mean, beautifully put together. And it, it doesn't explain how roses now get to the garden centre. I don't know what would. Um, it's really interesting, and it obviously shows you so much um, how long a process it is. I, I, I'd not really 
realised until I watched the video just sort of how much energy and effort goes into all of the preparation and the length of time. And um, yes, yeah, a really good little video that it is. Yeah, and also it shows the numbers, doesn't it? The number of varieties they grow. And of course, if we're all familiar this spring with the wonderful scenes of daffodil and tulips in in Holland and Lincolnshire, well, you get such a fantastic effect from the air of roses as well. Definitely, yeah. no, it was a really good video. I'm really pleased to have watched that. And um, you know, just thinking, sort of cuttings mm. and um it's about the right time of year now to take softwood cuttings isn't it it is yes one of my favorite times of the year i just love going out with me uh, my, my sharp knife and maybe plastic bag yep. uh in the morning preferably to to do good cuttings but yeah there's so many plants i mean a lot of uh, our listeners no doubt will grow lots of tender perennials and obviously uh, lots of the, the bedding plants such as uh, something like adrianthemums and uh, osteospernums uh, penstemons and obviously our popular pelagoniums as well as obviously a lot of uh, popular shrubs i mean i'm thinking of hydrangeas hydrangeas are synonymous at this time of year for producing those wonderful flowers but of course they're producing these non-woody shoots now which just say to me take music cutting yeah um, it's it's plants for free and i think as gardeners uh, and as and, and as obviously working in the garden centre trade, I think it's great that we can, you know, encourage people to take cuttings because it is so easy and it's fun as well, isn't it? It's oh yeah, a, it's always sort of enjoyable to see. I know historically, um, as a young boy, uh, I, I learned to do it with um, Tim, the old nursery manager, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, sometimes. They don't take, sometimes they do, but it's always exciting to see sort of how many do take and then you've got a whole new plant coming along. It is, yeah, and especially these days, uh, Peter, with the amount of plant material which is, we're growing, you know, quite a lot of it is tender. Um, we're being, uh, you know, nicely succumbed into these these wonderful flowers. I mean, things like salvias, the herbaceous salvias are fantastic and they're so good in all sorts of, of summers, especially this summer they're doing really well. Um, but they just need to be taken as cuttings just as an insurance policy just in case we get another very severe uh, and cold winter which would obviously kill your plants off so i always tend to think of softwood cuttings as your your insurance policy on your plants so um yep so yep as i say try and get out there in the morning get yourself a nice sharp um uh, knife um and really go along and take your cuttings uh, softwood cuttings generally are usually sort of two or three inches long and you cut them just below uh, a leaf joint and you obviously remove those lower leaves and obviously you can prepare your cuttings when you get inside your, your greenhouse or your, your shed or on the, the kitchen table. But yep. make sure you have a plastic bag and put them in there so they don't lose moisture because as soon as you take a, a cutting, effectively it starts to transpire, it tends to lose water. So the fresher you can keep the plant before you actually then put it into the compost, the better. Excellent. And with the cuttings, Chris, um, I know when we used to do geraniums, uh, when I was, like I said, when I was a boy, um, we used to use, uh, I think it was, used to be called rooting hormone. Mm-hmm. Rooting gel, and now there's sort of rooting powder uh, and yes. powders and gels, aren't there? They've changed a little bit, uh, haven't they? But mm, I think they've gone down the, the uh, obviously, the organic route or the more uh, less uh, sort of pretentious use of auxins. They seem to have gone out of favour, which is a shame because the two auxins used in a lot of the products of, of yesteryear and which perhaps the commercial people may use are based on obviously the uh, the auxins from willow from the okay. good old salix yep um because that's a really easy plant to 
propagated. You don't well, even need any rooting gel on that. You just you know, get a in. willow twig and stick it in a bucket of water and off you go. That's it. So there's a clue there, isn't it, how, how successful they are. But I suppose for some plants they are essential. For others, it's probably less so. Um, but I think the most important thing is, yeah, you prepare the cutting, you get it back to the bench, and then you get yourself some good compost. Now, you can buy, obviously, seed and cutting composts on the yep. market. Um, you can obviously buy a peat-free version of those as well. Or you could go down the route, which I tend to do. Is I tend to, if I'm doing lots of cuttings, I tend to mix my own mix, which is now 50-50 um, uh, peat-free, uh, multi-purpose compost. And I'm using the Hue Horizon because I'm finding that's quite easy to work with. Yep. And then I'll mix either perlite or vermiculite. Okay, so there's two that options. lightens the soil up a bit, doesn't it, and improves the drainage? Correct, yes. Now, the drainage is a bit of an issue because, of course, we know with our peat-free compost, the drainage on them is usually very good as well. So it's getting a bit of a balancing act with the amount you put in there. Hence, that's why putting vermiculite might work a little bit better because that's uh, slightly smaller uh, volcanic bits of granule, which obviously tends to fill in the gaps within your, your compost. But basically, it keeps the air and oxygen into your compost which of course is essential for roots to develop yep. um, but it's just getting this this management of the watering right and of course that's what we're all experiencing at the moment with these new composts how to water them correctly so um, just you need to be a little bit careful on that but once you've done that uh, pop your cuttings in remember to use a little dibber or a, a hb pencil to yep. make your holes because so, obviously if you're using your, your uh, rooting products you don't want to be uh, removing those as you push the cutting in and then you can put them into a propagator or what i use um <laughs> call me unconventional i use sort of the um, milky white polythene bags you get from the from the butchers yeah and, and i use that to put over the top of my pot get a couple of elastic bands to hold it in and i leave that on then and every morning i will take the uh, plastic bag off get rid of the, the condensation either leave it to dry or turn it inside out yep. and pop it back onto the uh, on, onto the the pot uh, keep the compost just moist not too wet and then fingers crossed um, things will start to root probably after two to three weeks if i'm lucky probably five to six if i'm not so lucky okay because i suppose a white opaque plastic bag mm. um if i'm imagining this correctly it, it gives you some shading and cuts the direct sunlight down but still lets all the light through so yeah. a bit like sort of greenhouse shading in uh, in your greenhouse Spot on, Peter. That's exactly the reason I use it. And it, the trouble is, if you use an ordinary polythene bag, um, yes, you can scorch your, your cuttings, especially on a sunny uh, windowsill or in your greenhouse. And that's the last thing you want to do for your poor little plants as they're develop or trying to develop a root system. Great. So, in a previous podcast, Chris, we we're talking about sort of big gardens and the wind's mm. a great park. Yes. And I saw on the news the other day that Buckingham Palace gardens are opening up again for the summer. They are indeed. Yes, obviously, they, they took a break last year because of COVID. But uh, yeah, we. The garden centre went out a couple of times with our, our group, a couple of groups actually to to the gardens and to the uh, the state rooms and uh, yeah it was a good day but the gardens themselves are amazing uh, they're really interesting and uh, you do feel as though you're going back in time in every sense really? of the word yeah um, I mean it's a total of thirty nine acres so when you always see pictures of Buckingham Palace you know those aerial shots you don't realise that thirty nine acres that's quite a big old area isn't it yeah I think quite a lot of that is the lake. It's a huge lake on right. there, yeah. And a few facts there. They've they've did a uh, one of these censuses. Three hundred twenty-five wild plant species have been counted there. Yeah. Thirty species of breeding birds. 
Okay. And uh, over a thousand trees, which of course we know there's lots of plane trees there. Um, the two plane trees, when you go on the tour, uh, as you walk down, are affectionately called uh, Victoria and Albert Excellent. on either side. And they're over 150 years old. So you get a sense of, of, uh, of stately presences there. And of course, there's over 85 species of, um, of oak trees. And of course, there's lots of mulberry trees because the they, Buckingham Palace Gardens actually holds the national collection of mulberry. Yep. Which, uh, you know, I, 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 when I went, I was absolutely, you know, gobsmacked. So, you know, there's such a lot of diverse uh, nature in just one area and in central London as well. Yeah. It certainly is, and it always looks very well kept as well. There must mm. be a few royal gardeners, I should imagine. I would have thought so. And yeah, the other sort of highlight when you go around the gardens, which I, you know, I really strongly recommend. Um, they're going to be open. Uh, obviously, they're open now through to the nineteenth of September. But you do get to see the tennis courts, which obviously was played by uh, famously um, by the royals. Yeah. And also, uh, Fred Perry uh, played there. Okay. And I also, and I also read that even Beyond Borg and John McEnroe. Um, as Wimbledon has now come and gone, but uh, they, yeah. they actually actually played there as well. So, in every sense, it's a very special place. But um, I think one of the noticeable things when we were walking around uh, with the group, and you, you're taken by by a really good tour leader who obviously points out special plants of interest. They had yeah. um, a conker tree, uh, one of the, um, uh, the the horse chestnuts, which was suffering from uh, this what they call bleeding canker, which is this nasty disease. And the Queen had commissioned some sort of latest uh, research on trying to keep this, this tree alive, because it was over 200 years old. Wow. And it had things plugged into it, uh, drips and all sorts of uh, uh, sort of very mechanical methods of trying to get this, this tree alive. Um, so it just shows that you know horticulture is very important in the royal household very interesting so if any of you are fortunate enough to go and have a look around the royal gardens please um put a hashtag royal dig it royal dig it that sounds good doesn't it we'll we'll, we'll see those uh, those cross just a point of interest um piece you're not allowed to take photographs uh, there, so so you'll have to obviously hold back on your uh, your social media until you get outside. As soon as you get outside the the sort of gates, there are opportunities to take photographs back in over the the wonderful lake to Buckingham Palace. That's where I took all my photos. So oh, okay. there's opportunities there, but uh, yeah, you can't take your drone along either. I should imagine. I don't think so. <laughs> no, it would upset the corgis. Yeah, definitely. So the National Garden Scheme, Chris. Um, mm. I know. Historically, in the garden centre counters, we used to have like the Buckinghamshire Yellow Book, the, mm. all all the different yellow books from around these areas. And um, is that still printed? The yellow book, or I is it all s- digital now? Yeah, no, the the the, uh, the yellow book is still printed. Um, I think it has gone online more, but I do I have noticed we have got some of those those famous yellow books in the in the shop now, which is great. And of course, most of your local garden centres to your area will have the NGS. Um, books for for that area to to have a scrutinise and identify those gardens close to you which are open. Yeah, because um, I was very fortunate, but in my streets, um, I think there was about four gardens that were opened up, and um, one of them had uh, some little baby hedgehogs that were being cared for oh, wow. in, in the garden, and um, I'd, I'd never seen them. They were feeding these tiny little hedgehogs with um, syringes and. Mm-hmm. Um, they're so cute. They're only, as I say, two, three inches long. And oh, wow. Just really, really cute little mini hedgehogs and lovely to see. 
But um, yeah, it's open, uh, always something different to go and have a look at and get inspired when you do go around the gardens, aren't there? And, and I was going to say, PC, you were saying that the that, that particular garden was jam-packed with plants. Mm, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen so many different cacti in a, in a garden. A gentleman who owns the house had three greenhouses and he'd been collecting cacti for the last 50-odd years and had literally hundreds of different cacti and different varieties. And uh, so nice to see some of them in flower as well because obviously cacti mm-hmm. don't flower that often and Indeed. i think there's a good half a dozen or so that were in flower but yeah the garden was um immaculate but mm-hmm. equally jam-packed full of hundreds of different little species of plant i'd mm. never seen so so many you know, such a diverse collection of plants i think and you know, very interesting to see how they'd managed to get them all to grow alongside one another and you know, obviously thought a lot about sort of the size of the yep. plants and how mm-hmm. big they're going to go and what conditions they needed and given them the right conditions and really interesting yeah certainly the the ngs is, is to be well supported and it's it's um in a lot of people's hearts these days, because obviously I think, I think the money goes to one of the one of the cancer charities, yeah. and I think they donate an awful lot of money, which is just fantastic. So, as we were talking about cream teas earlier, a lot of them offer cream tea refreshments as well, which yes. is obviously a nice money earner for the charities as well. Yeah, because you often find that uh, sort of gardeners are also selling cuttings and the little plants that they've propagated and I know, know one of the ones I saw and my mother would have loved because there's a, about five different varieties of aeonium that Ooh, he was very selling. nice so yeah well worth a visit and relatively cheap I think we paid five pounds to visit no, well we could have visited um about a dozen different gardens fantastic value all, for money yes. all within walking distance of each other which is great and very good value for money so yeah very interesting so our next show in a couple of weeks' time, Chris, uh, what's that going to be about? Right, so we're going to be joined by Ed Turpin from Bebont, okay. which stands for Berkshire, Buckingham and Oxfordshire Wildlife Trust. Excellent. So it's the, one of the local trusts to, to where we are in, in Buckingham here. But of course, the Wild Trust, is, as many of our listeners will know, is, is countrywide across the UK. And we're going to be chatting to a whole series of subjects which we feel that uh, we want to try and link into to what's happening to our, our wildlife at the moment, including, obviously, uh, the whole areas of, of conservation. So, yes, we're going to be priming with lots of questions and we hope to have a, a really good show to 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 present in a few weeks time excellent that sounds like fun well thank you very much for the show today chris thank you peter today's show was brought to you by buckingham garden center and nurseries the show was hosted by chris day and peter brown the show was produced by peter brown and our thanks to chilton music therapy for providing the music thanks for listening at chilton music therapy We want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. From parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.